I wish you had never been born. My life would be so much easier if you weren't in it. She said that to her daughter, her only child. If I could go back in time, I would never marry you. I hate you. I'm only staying married to you because God hates divorce. Otherwise, I'd be long gone. He said that to his wife in their second year of marriage. I wish you would die. I wish you would both get hit by a car or get cancer or something and just die. She said that to her parents when she was a teenager. You're disgusting. You have no worth. You're a piece of trash. You're garbage. No one wants you. No one loves you. No one will have you. He said that to his wife over and over again throughout their marriage. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. We have all said things that we are ashamed of, things that we regret, words that come back to haunt us. And we have all done things that we are ashamed of. We've all thought things that if they were put up on the screens here this morning, we would be so embarrassed that we would run out of here and we would never show our faces here again. So we're not alone this morning. This is all of us. We stand exposed. Together, we stand exposed. All of us have said things. All of us have thought things. And all of us have done things that do not glorify God or show love for our neighbor. In fact, many things that we have said that we are ashamed of have actually hurt people very deeply. Our words have cut deep. Our words have wounded people and left them bloody and lying on the side of the road. And some of us have done some things to people that are awful and have caused much pain that still lingers daily for those that we have hurt through our actions. So we're a mess, all of us, together. And if that's true, how does the gospel address all of that junk? How is the gospel good news for sinners who have said awful things to people and wounded them deeply? And how is the gospel good news for sinners who have done awful things to people and damaged them incredibly? And how is the gospel good news for sinners who have thought some of the most wicked and grotesque thoughts that nobody knows about? The gospel, of course, does not remove consequences. Grace doesn't necessarily cover over consequences. There are real and serious and sobering consequences to sin in this world. And that's why we don't take a light view of sin here at Grace. It's why we have a prayer of confession every Sunday to remind ourselves that we're sinners and we shouldn't take sin lightly. So we don't take a light view of sin here at Grace. Now, we love God's grace. We celebrate God's grace to us in Christ. But we know that his grace doesn't necessarily cover the consequences of sin. Yes, God will give us 
transforming grace to endure the consequences of our sin, but he doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. Sin is real. And sinful words cut deep and the pain lingers. And sinful actions cause serious damage to people made in God's image. And that's why we are and should be serious about killing sin in our lives because sin destroys. It destroys us and it destroys others and it leaves a trail of dead in its wake. So how is the gospel good news for sinners who have really messed up and really messed up relationships and really messed up churches and really messed up families? How is the gospel good news when your conscience continues to remind you of all the terrible things you have done? I mean, as if the consequences were bad enough, but then comes along Mr. Guilty Conscience to remind you day in and day out about how terrible you were, how terrible you are. To remind you how dirty you are. And so shame and guilt are many times our constant companions. Well, the preacher of Hebrews will tell us how the gospel of God's Son is still good news for messy people like us who make messes and mess things up all the time. Part of the newness of the new covenant, part of the good news of the new covenant is that the blood of Jesus actually cleanses our conscience. And so what the preacher of Hebrews wants to tell us today is this. You are messy, but you are clean. You're messy, yes, but you are clean. It's true. We are messy. We are sinners, and because we are sinners, we still make a mess of things and make a mess of relationships in this world. And because we're a mess, our consciences constantly remind us of the messes that we make and so the guilt and the shame gnaw at us and some of us feel dirty all the time like we just can't shake that feeling of I just feel dirty I just feel dirty and like I'm not good enough and yet Jesus sees us and he knows us and he knows Everything about us, every deep, dark secret, he knows, and he still loves us, and he declares us clean, and he welcomes us into his presence. That's good news, and that's what we'll hear about today from the preacher of Hebrews. So turn in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the merciful God we serve. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden, golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the ta- tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So what the preacher of Hebrews is doing here, he's briefly reminding the Hebrews, if you remember, who are a predominantly Jewish group of uh, believers in churches, he's reminding them about the tabernacle where the nation of Israel used to worship before Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings. Moses, of course, received the instructions from the Lord on Mount Sinai, so Yahweh, in his grace, made provisions for sinners to come into his presence and worship. And so he gave Moses directions for the tabernacle, which was this movable structure that Israel had to tear down and set up again as they were traveling through the wilderness. Now, you can see how the Holy of Holies in the innermost place where, where God would come down in this cloud of glory, you can see how it was enclosed in the back inside the tent. And then surrounding the courtyard area here, you have this fence that goes all around. And so the message of the tabernacle was the same as the message at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Israel. The message was this, don't come near, don't get too close There are procedures to go through to approach Yahweh because he is holy. So don't you dare barge in. And so the preacher is going to continue contrasting this kind of worship, worship under the old covenant, with what worship is like now in the new covenant. Under the old covenant, the average worshiper could only enter into the outer court, go through that little purple uh, gate area there, and could only stay in the outer court. They could not go inside the tabernacle. Only priests could do that. And then only the, whole, the high priest could go inside the inner part into the Holy of Holies. And he could only do that one time a year. Only the priests were considered holy or set apart to go into the tent, into the holy place. So they would go inside where the golden lampstand was and they would keep it lit. They would keep 12 loaves of fresh bread on the table of showbread and they would light incense and they would pray for the nation. And all of this took place every day inside the tent in the holy place by the priests who served there. But only the high priests were allowed to go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, and that only once per year. So even regular priests who could go into the holy place, they could not go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. Only high priests were allowed to do that. And they only went in one time a year. And so the high priest would go into the most holy place once per year, according to Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, which is in October. And he would go in with a censer full of coals from the fire and two handfuls of sweet incense. And he would drop the incense into the fire and it would create this smoke over the top of the ark. Now why did God have the high priest light this incense that would fill the Holy of Holies up? The reason he did that was so that the high priest could not see the glory of the Lord when he descended in a cloud. If you remember, Yahweh would descend in his glory in a cloud. And so in order to keep the high priest from seeing the glory of the Lord, he had to light two handfuls of incense, which would block his view of God's glory. And then he would take his finger and dip it in the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and he would sprinkle it seven times on top of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is just another name for for the, the lid there you see on the very top. 
And he would atone for or cover the sins of the nation. And then on top of the ark, top of the mercy seat, the lid of the ark, there are these two cherubim there who spread their wings out over the mercy seat. These cherubim were these creatures that were part lion and and part man, and they had these wings, so they were these winged lions that had the head and the face of a man. They're not angels the way you and I think of angels. So in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, and the Lord sends them out, and Moses tells us at the end of chapter 3 that Yahweh put cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out. When you read that, you're supposed not to think of some precious moments, angel. You're supposed to see these cherubim, these lion-type creatures who had the head and face of a man and had these massive wings. So there are at least two of these angels, these cherubim, there, maybe more, guarding the entrance back into the holy, uh, back into the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, which some scholars like me believe is a, a lightsaber, but that's for another sermon. So imagine seeing a few of those creatures with a flaming sword. Well, that's what's set on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So the cherubim were viewed as guardians of the throne. They kept sinners out. In fact, when Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings, he, in addition to these two cherubim, he built these two giant cherubim that stood on either side of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the cherubim that were on the lid of the Ark, on the mercy seat, and the cherubim that were in the holy place, the two giant cherubim that stood on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in Solomon's temple, and the cherubim that were guarding people getting back into the Garden of Eden, they were essentially saying these words, you cannot come in, you're unclean. You're dirty, you're messy, and Yahweh is holy. And so the cherubim were on top of the ark, but then inside the ark of the covenant, there were these two copies of the Ten Commandments. And there was a golden urn that had some manna in it, and then there was Aaron's rod that budded, if you remember the story from Numbers 17. Now, later on, we learn that when Solomon builds the temple, the jar of manna and Aaron's bud were not included inside the ark. So basically, somewhere along the way, some priest lost these two items. So can you imagine finding those on an archaeological dig? But let me add a few quick notes about the ark and the Ten Commandments. First, the Ten Commandments were inscribed on stone tablets but not by Moses. Exodus 31, 18 tells us that the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments on these stone tablets with his own finger. Second, in keeping with the customs in the ancient Near East, the ark was really considered a footstool that the Lord rested his feet on. Kings in the ancient Near East would have these arks or these footstools positioned below their throne, and that's where they rested their feet. And they would keep their laws and their covenants and their treaties inside these little boxes. So any treaty or covenant that they made with another person, they kept them inside this little box. In fact, they they kept two copies of each treaty or covenant that they made with someone else. And then two copies of the covenant would go to the other person or to the other king. And so each person in the covenant or treaty got two copies of that covenant or treaty. And that explains why the preacher says there were tablets 
two copies of the Ten Commandments in the ark or in the footstool. It isn't that there were five commandments on one tablet and five commandments on the other. Rather, inscribed on each of the tablets were the Ten Commandments. You had Ten Commandments on one tablet, Ten Commandments on the other. And this was the typical etiquette for kings in the ancient Near East. And so were the cherubim. You can, you can Google Assyrian art and you can see giant structures where they built these these lion creatures with wings and the head and face of a man. You can search Assyrian art and architecture. It's, it's all over uh, their temples. Now, we just spent a lot of detail on that stuff. And the preacher would raise his, eyes, his eyebrows at us because what did he say in verse 5? He said, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he doesn't go into detail, as much detail as I did, but I think he'll give us a break because he was writing predominantly to a group of Jewish people who knew everything about that stuff, and we're predominantly Gentiles here, so we need a little refresher on some of this stuff. But here's the bottom line. All of these worship regulations that the preacher mentions in verse 1, they reminded people that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is holy, that he is set apart And unclean sinners could not just rush into his presence. They had to go through priests as they offered sacrifices. And so you had the people who were common. And then you had the priests who were holy and set apart. Now continuing, let's look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So again, the the preacher of Hebrews is reiterating that there was a protocol to follow follow here. There, There were regulations for worship. As long as the first section was standing, as long as the tabernacle and the courtyard was standing, then the way into the holy places for your average Old Testament worshiper was not open. So the Holy Spirit is indicating that as long as the Old Covenant tabernacle, as long as the Old Covenant temple that Solomon built, as long as they were still standing, then there was no way to enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, unless you were a high priest, and then only once per year. See, the only thing that the Old Covenant could do was declare you clean so that you could come and worship. But then you'd become unclean again, And you'd have to go back through the hoops over and over again. And so until the time of Reformation, he mentions that in verse 10. That's referring to Jesus coming and fulfilling all of these types and shadows. Until the time of Reformation, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Until that time, you could only be declared clean if you did the right things. You could only be declared clean by a priest if you did all that the law commanded and brought the appropriate gifts and sacrifices. And then you would appear before a priest and he would declare you clean. You can go in and worship. The old covenant 
could not do one thing, though. It could not cleanse the human conscience. The old covenant was not equipped to truly calm a guilty conscience. It could provide outward washings, but not an internal cleansing of the conscience. Only Jesus can do that. Only the blood of Jesus purifies. And that's one reason why the new covenant is better. Because Jesus knows how to deal with a guilty conscience. He cleanses it and brings freedom from guilt and freedom from shame. And so it's true. You are messy, but you're clean. I am messy, but I am clean. If you are in union with Christ, if you have repented of your sins and you're trusting in his life and death and resurrection, then Jesus has declared you clean regardless of what your guilty conscience is trying to tell you. You are messy, yes, because you are a sinner. But make no mistake about it, Christian, you are clean because you are in union with Christ. And it's not that Jesus simply cleans us and moves on or cleans us up and sends us on our way. He actually loves us. He sees all the mess and all the crud and all the filth and all the infection of our hearts. And he doesn't run. He doesn't leave. He never leaves us because he loves us. Think about that. Jesus never leaves us because he loves us. He actually invites us into his presence. And we are welcomed into his presence because as our high priest, he has declared us clean. We are clean because of his sacrifice. We are clean because of his blood. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When Jesus died in our place, he did not enter into the tabernacle. He did not enter into the temple to offer his blood. He entered heaven itself and he secured an eternal redemption for us. Contrasting that with the old covenant, which was temporary. See, your, 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 uh, your cleanliness under the old covenant was temporary. It didn't last. But in the new covenant, Jesus declares you clean once for all. It's eternal. It's an eternal washing and cleansing. And so you don't have to come back to Jesus time and time again to be declared clean. Christian, you are clean. You're messy, but you are clean. 
You are credited with his righteousness, his perfect life, his perfect keeping of the law of God. You are justified. You are blameless. But this wasn't the case under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, you had to see a priest and he would have to declare you clean so that you could enter into the tabernacle in the courtyard. He had to tell you that you were cleared to go in and worship Yahweh. And so there were two groups of people under the old covenant, the clean and the unclean. And to be clean was to be acceptable. To be clean was to be acceptable to God. The unclean, however, were cast out and they were not able to worship And the reason why the unclean were cast out is because they could make the clean unclean. I mean, you could run into somebody who was unclean and be like, oh, Bob, why did you touch me, man? You're unclean and now I'm clean. Or some Gentile that lived miles away would let their pigs loose and you would step out of the tabernacle and a pig would run by and touch you and be like, oh, man, I'm unclean. So if you came in contact with any unclean person, they could make you unclean. If you touched a leper, boom, unclean. If you touched a woman during her monthly uh, period, boom, unclean. If you touched an unclean animal, boom, unclean. And women were declared unclean for a certain period after having a baby. So they had to wait a while before they even have their baby showers. And people come look at the baby and, and celebrate with them. And and bodily discharges made you unclean. Lots of things could make you unclean. A pimple. Zit. Unclean. And so there was this constant reminder that you were and you could be unclean. Now why did God set up all these clean and unclean laws? Here's the message. Under the old covenant, one's actions and associations with others could make you unclean. And because God is holy, uncleanness does not belong in his presence. That doesn't mean that the unclean were not welcome into his presence. It just means that there were procedures to go through in order to draw near and worship God. Because he's holy, because he's set apart. Doesn't mean that the unclean were not welcome into his presence. They were But there were procedures and worship regulations and preparations that they had to go through in order to be declared clean so that they could draw near and worship God. And so these laws were given to remind the people that the Lord is holy. And so when you were declared unclean, think about how it made you feel. You may have been unclean because of your sin and your actions, and that would bring that sense of guilt. You'd have a guilty conscience. But if somebody else made you unclean, Like if an unclean person touched you, it wasn't necessarily your fault, but still you were declared unclean and you became an outcast. You were untouchable, no physical contact. Of course, God in his grace provided the steps and the protocol to be able to return to the community, but still, this was not what you wanted. You wanted to be clean. You wanted to be declared clean. You wanted to hear the words You're welcome again. You're clean. Come and worship the Lord. 
And so to be clean under the old covenant meant that you could freely come and go to the tabernacle and the temple. It it brought a sense of freedom and liberty and joy. It meant that you had peace. You had shalom. It meant that you had peace with God through the sacrificial system, through the shedding of blood. And so you could come and go and not feel like people were staring at you because you're unclean. And you walked around not thinking people had to avoid you. Not feeling that sense of shame. But the sacrifices of the old covenant were temporary and provisional. As verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? And so the ashes of a heifer might temporarily remove the, re- the ritual impurity from someone who maybe touched a corpse or a dead person, but ashes could not actually and effectually turn aside the wrath of God. Only the blood of Jesus does that. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses the conscience. This is true. This is the gospel. But how many of us still function like worshipers in the old covenant? Even though we know that the blood of Jesus has cleansed our consciences so that we can now freely serve God and serve others we still, many of us, functionally live like an unclean Israelite. And so we feel unclean. We feel like we have been put out of the community. We feel like we're dirty. We feel that sense of shame that we don't belong around God, like he won't have us. And so we heap shame on ourselves, and we self-diagnose ourselves as unclean. And if you have an overacting conscience like I do, then every wrongdoing or what you perceive to be a wrongdoing will contribute to the shame that you heap on yourself. If your conscience works overtime, it will analyze every wrongdoing and every perceived wrongdoing. And it will contribute to the guilt and the shame that you pour on yourself. And so when that sense of shame comes, you start thinking, how can I approach God when I feel so dirty? How can I approach God when I feel so dirty all the time? And you start listening to yourself and you don't feel good enough. You feel dirty and you start rehearsing the past. Things said, things done, things that you have thought. This is what a guilty conscience does. This is what shame does. We have all felt that deep sense of being unclean, that we are unacceptable because of something we have done or something that was done to us. And so we feel, I'm not acceptable to God because of what that person did to me. And so we feel disgraced and we feel less than human. And that's how shame works. Shame is dehumanizing. And if you're like me, sometimes even the words of Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Sometimes those words don't even bring much comfort because I'm a person who wants to pay for his sins. 
As strange as it seems, if I hear the words guilty, then I feel like I can do something about it. I can pay for my guilt. I can work for it. I can beat myself up enough. Then I can pay for my sins. If I wallow long enough in despair, then I can pay for my sins, and then I can come into God's presence. And that's why it's hard for me to receive grace. It's hard for me to receive and embrace and believe the words, no condemnation. If I hear guilty, I can do something about it. I know how to do guilty really well. I can beat myself up. I can feel remorse. I can have a pity party. I can feel bad about myself. I can wallow. I can do something with guilty. But to hear the words, not guilty, no condemnation, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. Those words are hard for me to accept. But that's where the freedom is. Learning to let go of my past. Learning that I don't have to go back and play the tape and play the movie over and over again and rehearse it and say, I should have said this. I wish I wouldn't have said that. The tape has been destroyed. I am in union with Jesus and his past is now my past. His past of perfect obedience to the law is now my past. His past of never sinning is now my past. And that's your past too, Christian, if you're in union with Christ. He is not ashamed of us because we are clean, because we're justified, because we're forgiven, because we're blameless. You see, shame shackles us to the past. But the gospel brings the liberation and the freedom that we all long for in our lives. There is no condemnation. Not guilty. We are forgiven. The blood of Jesus has purified us. And now we are blameless in God's eyes. And that sin, that thing that you have done, that you are totally embarrassed about. And if we were to broadcast it over the airways or show it in movie theaters or even put it here on the screens this morning, that sin that you did, that you hate, that if people knew, you would just die. I mean, you would literally die of humiliation. That thing has been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. Micah seven nineteen. That sin, that moment is not you. It is not your identity, Christian. That moment, that action, those words, those thoughts are not you. That sin that you are ashamed of and embarrassed about doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus now. Let go. Let it sink like a heavy weight into the bottom of the sea of forgetfulness. Your sins, your past does not belong to you anymore. They belong to Jesus, Christian, because you are clean. It's true. We've all done many, many things that we're ashamed of. And we've said many, many things that we're ashamed of. And we've thought many, many things that we're ashamed of. And Jesus comes to us. And he knows all our junk. I mean, you can't, you can't trick Jesus. You can't fool Jesus. You can't hide anything from Jesus. He knows all of our junk. And knowing all of our dirty secrets comes to us and he says you are clean he knows all of our deep dark secrets 
and he stays. He doesn't run away. He doesn't leave when we're exposed. He doesn't keep us at arm's length. He doesn't treat us like a leper. Maybe you're here today and you've forgotten that you were clean, that you've been purified by the blood of Jesus. How do you know when you've forgotten that your conscience has been purified by his blood and shame is working in your life? You know that, that you've forgotten that you've been cleansed, that you are clean. You, you know that shame is at work in your life when these things are true about you. You just feel unclean all the time. You feel like something's wrong with you, like you just can't shake that I'm dirty feeling. I just can't get rid of that feeling. And you feel like you've not measured up. And you can't seem to get your act together no matter how hard you try. And so you feel worthless. And you feel embarrassed. And you feel rejected. And you feel inadequate. And you feel humiliated. And you, you feel filthy. And you feel disgusting. And you feel repulsive. And you feel disgraced. And you feel unlovable. All because of things that you have done. Or things you haven't done. Or things that have been done to you. And so what do we do when shame intrudes and interferes in our lives? We look to Jesus. Here's a sign that shame has intruded in your life. You try to hide things. You want to cover things up. And you feel exposed. And you never feel good enough. You feel like you can't be loved even by God. These are all telltale signs of shame. So let me ask you this morning. What do you want to hide today? What do you want to cover up? What do you want to just disappear? Like, Lord, wipe the hard drive clean so no one can find it. That will help you identify where shame has its grip on you. What is it that you wish you could hide? What is it you wish you could just go back and erase it and just make it disappear? That will help you identify where shame has a grip on you. That will help you identify where you have forgotten that you are clean. And here's another way to tell if shame is at work. When you feel wrong, but you're not sure why. You know, shame is doing its work when you just have this nagging feeling of being wrong and you don't know why, this nagging feeling of feeling dirty and and filthy all the time. And you don't know why. Shame is working in your life when you feel just as horrible about something as the day it happened. Jesus came to wash you with his blood, to cleanse you, to welcome you into his presence. Rob Pacienza, pastor, says, your greatest fear in life is to be known and rejected. Jesus says, I know you. I know everything about you. And I love you. To be fully known and fully loved, it sounds like heaven. It is grace. It is heaven. To be known by Jesus and not to be rejected, it's heaven. Jesus knows the darkest places of our hearts. And he still loves us. He knows all of our mess. He knows all of our junk. And he stays. If you are in union with Christ, this is true. You are messy, but you are clean. 
You are a mess. But Jesus will have you. He will have you. Do you feel unlovable? Do you feel dirty? Do you feel like a piece of garbage that no one could love? Jesus loves you and he will have you. If you're not a Christian, you're a mess, but you're dirty. You're not clean. You're dirty with your sin and rebellion. So you need to be washed and cleansed of that sin and rebellion because God is holy and he demands perfection of you. If that's you today, will you repent and believe? Will you come to Jesus today? Come to Jesus today. He will have you and he will satisfy you and you can drink from the river of his delights and just say, ah, so good. In John 15, 3, Jesus said, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus has spoken the word of the gospel over us We are clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're going to stand and sing that together after we pray. But when we get to that line, make it personal. How precious is the flow that makes me someone who has said, thought, and done horrendous things. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed with your mercy and your kindness to us. Because we have all worshipped a million things and not delighted in your son like we should have. And yet you love us. You know the sin in our hearts, God. You know our thoughts and our actions, our words. You know our mess, you know our junk, you know our filth. And you come and you say, you are clean. And you come and you say, I will have you. And then you start a process of transformation in our lives that we can't even begin to understand. And it's all because of Jesus through the power of your spirit. Be glorified as we sing about the blood that makes sinners clean. In Jesus' name, amen.